Would you please turn with me to your study outline? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends in Arco, Idaho, and Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad that you're joining us today for our study of God's Word. We're continuing with our series from the book of James. And the big idea today is this. When we look beyond the face of a person and get to know the heart of a person, three good things happen. Number one, the walls fall down. Number two, God is pleased. And number three, people are drawn like a magnet to Jesus. So let me repeat that. The big idea today is this from God's word. When we look beyond the face of a person to get to know the heart of a person, three good things happen. Number one, walls fall down. Number two, God is pleased and honored. And number three, Jesus are drawn like a magnet through us to Jesus. So the title of today's study is Let the Walls Fall Down. My wife, Kimberly, when she was at Boston University, uh, she hung around with the football crowd because her boyfriend was a fullback on the Boston University football team. She hadn't yet discovered um, how much more masculine cross-country runners are. She had not discovered that yet. Um, And uh, so at any rate, uh, she was hanging with the football crowd. They had this party and it was kind of joint. There were football players from Boston College and from Boston University and their girlfriends and others uh, uh, around them there, the groupies, whatever. And so they're all at this party and uh, this young man comes over to her and begins to chat her up and talk to her and probably be hitting on her, you know. And, and so he, 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 he said to her in conversation, I'm a quarterback for Boston College. Now, Kimberly knew enough about football. To, she kind of looked at this guy, and he was, I don't know, 5'8", five, 5'9", five, maybe 5'10", and that's tall. But for a quarterback for a major university, that's not very tall. And so she just laughed to herself and said, this guy's a liar. And so she wrapped up the conversation quickly and went back to her friends and kind of laughed with them, said, hey, see that guy over there? He claims he's a football a quarterback for Boston College. And they laughed about it. Well, later that fall, she's watching television. And the quarterback for Boston College is a guy by the name of Doug Flutie. And he, uh, he was a Heisman Trophy winner that year. Uh, the game that she saw, he did that famous Hail Mary pass against the University of Miami, which is considered one of the greatest moments in sports history. And that quarterback looks vaguely familiar. And so she calls her roommate, Susie, and she goes, Susie, are you watching this? She goes, yes. She goes, is that the guy from the party? Yes, it is. You know, yeah, oh my goodness. Uh, you know, and, and he makes so much more money than I do now. And uh, he's so much better looking than I am. And he still has his hair. And uh, uh, so at any rate, she made a mistake. Why? Because she judged a person by the outside rather than truly getting to know them. And that's exactly what we're talking about here today. As the morning goes on, people after the 8.30 service, uh, I I gather stories. I always say the best sermon that I preach is the one when I'm driving home because I've gathered all of your insights uh, like a snowball along the way. And and John Burroughs was telling me about Dave Eden. Many of you remember Dave Eden. He was the bass in Manassa, our quartet here. Uh, They now live in the Dallas area. So anyway, Dave Eden's father-in-law was president of this big construction company. And one day this guy comes in who just is all you know, really looks dirty and scruffy. And he's just thinking, what am I bothering to my time with this guy? What's what's going on here? Is this guy legit? Well, turns out he was the founder of Levi Strauss. And he hired him that day for like a million square foot project for one of his plants there in Dallas. You just can't judge that way. I remember 
another story that I heard, and, uh, and, and here again, it sounds like a myth, but I believe it's supposed to be true, where this couple comes in years ago, like 100 years ago or so, and they come into the office of the president of Harvard, and they're this really down-home country, bumpkin kind of couple, really look like hicks from the sticks. And the Harvard president is very annoyed by this. How did my secretary allow them to get in? And, and they said they'd like to make a donation in, in honor of their, their son who had died. And, 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 and the president of Harvard just wanted to get rid of him. So he said, do you have any idea what it costs to run in a, a school like Harvard? And it was back in the 1800s. So he said something like, do you know what it costs, $50 million? Or, so I can't remember what the figure was. And the wife looks at the husband and goes, is that all it takes for a university? And so Mr. and Mrs. Stanford left the meeting, <laughs> went back home to the West Coast, and started Stanford University. So... So you, you got to be careful with this whole judging from the outside kind of thing. Now, the Bible has a word for this. It's called favoritism. Favoritism, in the, in the James here, the passage we're going to look at in James 2 verse 1, favoritism uh, is a, co- a combination of two Greek words, meaning to receive by face. And then the, the Greek verb construction here is present tense imperative. So when it says don't show favoritism, it means stop doing something you're already doing. So when James writes this, he's writing it to people, Christ followers, who were already doing the thing he commanded them um, not to do. Now the symbol for justice when you go into a courtroom is a lady with um, a blindfolded holding the scales of justice. You've seen that. And the idea there is, is if Lady Justice can't see your face, she's going to judge more fairly than if she can see what you look like. The justice is to be blind as to external appearances. Now, favoritism means to receive by face, meaning positively, to give a person an advantage by what they look like. Now, the opposite side of that is prejudice. And prejudice is to do something against a person because of the externals. An adverse judgment or opinion formed beforehand or without knowledge or examination of, of the facts. Now, there are many, many different examples of this. The one that we typically think of is race or nationality. But there are so many other areas where we judge by face or favoritism or, or prejudice. How about young versus old? How many of you are baby boomers? Let me see. Anybody baby boomers like me? Okay, remember the saying we had in the 1960s? Never trust anyone over the age of, you tell me, 30. Never trust anyone. Now, that worked until we all turned 30 and 40. And 50, and so, you know, until, until it went on. Now, the remarkable thing about our church, we were talking about, uh, Pastor Eric and I were talking about last Sunday, is how multi-generational we are. Most churches specialize in one generation. And so you tend to have World War II or builder churches or boomer churches or Gen X churches or millennial churches. Most churches specialize in one generation. I showed you that chart last Sunday which uh, shows the demographic breakdown, the age breakdown of the 7,000 plus people that call Purpose Church their home. And it's amazing how it's broken down very evenly across eight different decades. It's just an absolutely remarkable thing, unique, maybe even one of the most unique or not the most unique in churches in America today. It's just amazing how, how multi-generational, how evenly uh, it, it is spread out. Now, speaking of age discrimination, uh, I think I've told you this story before, but when my son Andrew, our son Andrew, 
um, was an airline pilot for ExpressJet, and he was a first uh, officer, so he was a co-pilot, and uh, he was always with an older captain. But he was about 24 years old, and he, and he looked like he was 12 years old. I'm telling you, our son has always looked about half of his age. So he was 24 that looked like 15 or 13 or 12. And so it would truly freak out the passengers. You know how you leave? And they don't let you see what the pilots look like before. Have you ever noticed that? You don't get to see before. Uh, So you might make a wrong judgment on them. But you get to see after you've safely landed, now we'll show you what the pilots look like. And here's this 12-year-old kid standing there in his uniform next to the captain. And so the captain used to love to tease the passengers and say, he's old enough to fly a jet, but he's not old enough to have a driver's license yet. And so that's what he would tell the passengers as it came out. Uh, one of the most ironic things that happened was that once he flew into Richmond, Virginia, flew a jet with passengers, full of passengers, into Richmond, Virginia. And he wanted to go see his grandmother, my mother, who was in a Southern Baptist retirement home about 30 minutes from Bird International, the Richmond airport. But this is the funny part. He was old enough to fly the jet into Richmond. He wasn't old enough to rent a car to go see his grandmother, or at least not without um, a high price uh, connected with it. Uh, How about in the area of sports? Uh, We have Ducks fans and we have Kings fans. And the other day, I made the mistake of saying to a Kings fan, well, now that the Kings are eliminated, are you rooting for the Ducks? And he looked at me like I committed treason. You know, he's just like, what? Are you crazy? He says, no, I'm a Kings fan. I'm not going to root for the Ducks. Uh, How about Republican versus Democrat? Boy, that's been a tough year for that. Uh, keeping unity within the church. And we have a remarkably diverse church in, in, in political views. And I was talking to a couple of friends of mine, one from a church in Boston and one a church in Chicago. And they were sharing, um, it was almost like a support group, <laughs> woundedness together. Uh, they were sharing how it was their toughest year they had ever, and they were all about my age, so about 35 years in ministry of keeping unity in, in the church. And they gave story after story of people that had left their churches um, because either, on, on both ends of the political spectrum, not on just one end, on both ends. And so this side would be mad because he wouldn't preach against the other side. And then this side would be mad at the pastor because he wasn't preaching against the other side. And because, uh, you know, he was preaching Jesus and not one way or the other. And they gave story after story of people that had, that had left, left their church. Uh, how about background or education? Here's a game that pastors play. It's called, what seminary did you go to? And I went to a very conservative seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. And so whenever I meet uh, somebody from a more liberal seminary than mine, I'm always a little bit standoffish until I get to know them better. And so pastors judge on, you know, you immediately do the pedigree. Where did you go to school? And what does that mean about your theology and, and where you stand on certain things with regard to God's word? How about east versus west or north versus south? Uh, I think I've told you this story before that when um, years ago, um, when uh, Kimberly's uh, dad was still alive and they went and visited my parents in Virginia. So I I married a girl from New York. So I grew up in the South, Southern Virginia, near the North Carolina border. So I grew up a Southerner, married a girl from New York. And boy, that shook up our family and friends, I'm telling you. Because it's one thing to marry a Yankee, but uh, a Yankee from New York. A New York Yankee. That's like the worst kind of Yankee to somebody that is in New York. And I remember my dad's business partner once said to me, he says, Glenn, we always knew you had Yankee blood in you. And so they accused me of having Yankee blood in me because uh, uh, I'd married a girl from New York. So anyway, her parents came to visit my parents, and they wanted to go to the family farm, which is in the middle of nowhere, just in the boonies. And so they took Kimberly's parents' car that had New York license plate on it. 
So they're driving down there in the farm, and it's this dirt road, this long dirt road, and they're coming down. And all of a sudden, a couple of my dad's hunting buddies, Roger and Red, were driving out, and they see driving into their domain this car with New York plates on it. Roger and Red, they had the name and they had the next to match it, I'm telling you. So at any rate, so they're like, what's this New York plates coming into our domain, our deer hunting territory, you know? So they pulled the car right in the middle of the road and slowly got out. My dad saw what was happening, jumped out and said, Roger Red, it's me, it's me. Oh, Mr. Gunderson, Mr. Gunderson, okay, it's cool, it's cool, it's cool. You're fine, you're, you're with him. Now, Christians, we do this as well. Which Bible translation uh, do you use? Uh, Where do you stand on the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Uh, How about eternal security? How about end times? How about the role of women in the church? Or now I'm meddling. How about preference of music? You know, it's funny. I was uh, laughing with a couple of other pastors uh, this past week. And we we talked about how there are two buzzwords that people use in the church if they like music in the church or dislike music in the church. And those two buzzwords are worship and performance. And so if they, if they like a type of music, they call it worship. If they don't like a type of music, they call it performance. So if you like the organ prelude, I heard Debbie DeGrotto laugh right out loud. Right, right out loud here in the front row. Uh, if you like the organ prelude, that's worship. You don't like it, it's performance. Uh, if you like the orchestra, uh, orchestral piece, that's worship. But if you don't like it, it's performance. If you like a praise team, uh, you, you say, oh, they do worship. If you don't like a praise team, you call it, they do performance. And so we do this in all these uh, various different areas. But probably the most prevalent one is like versus dislike. Um, if you like someone, have you noticed how you give them the benefit of the doubt? But if you don't like someone, you don't give them the benefit of the doubt. I love this poem uh, by Chuck Swindoll, who's just such an awesome pastor, one of my heroes. He writes this, I have a pastor. Time was when he was a good pastor. I pronounced him great. This I did because I liked him. His sermons were wonderful as long as I liked him. His speech was passing fair as long as I liked him. He was a hard worker as long as I liked him. He was the man for the job as long as I liked him. In fact, I was strong for him as long as I liked him. But my pastor offended me one day. Whether he knew it or not, I do not know. And since that day, My pastor has ceased to be a good pastor. He's just an ordinary one. His sermons are not so wonderful since he offended me. His speech is of no account since he offended me. His faults are more prominent since he offended me. He's not a hard worker since he offended me. He's not the man for the job since he offended me. He doesn't feed me anymore since he offended me. Uh, one of my favorite Star Trek episodes. How many Star Trek fans do we have in here? Okay, do the sign. Show me that you are one. Okay. So anyway, um, and I would have shown you this episode, but our younger media pastor, Peter Wilson, who's a Star Wars guy, thought my clip was too cheesy. Well, I can't wait for 10 years from now. I'm going to tell him a Star Wars clip is too cheesy. That's what I, I'm longing for that day. So anyway, I'll just take five minutes to describe it on, on the other hand. Okay, so, so anyway... <laughs> One of, my favorite Star, one of my favorite Star Trek episodes, and maybe you remember this one, and it was very powerful. I mean, it really um, uh, hit me, and you know, Star Trek was kind of the way it would push on some social issues and stuff. It was very interesting how it did that back in the 1960s, and I was a, a teenager growing up in the 60s, you know, a young person growing up in the 60s and 70s in, in the South, 
And it really made an impact on me. It was the episode, I don't know if you remember it, where Captain Kirk and the Enterprise, they come to a planet, and everybody on the planet um, is black on one half of their face and white on the other half. And half of the planet hates the other half. And they're having wars, they're trying to kill each other. So they get these two guys, they tear them apart, who are about to kill each other. And they say, why are you killing each other? Well, because we're so different. And they're all just looking at them and saying, you're not different. You're black on one half of your face and white on the other half. What, what, what do you, he says, you, can't you see? He's black on the right side and white on the left. And I'm black on the left side and white on the right. And I remember as a teenager growing up in the South, thinking these guys are stupid. And then I stopped and I said, you know what? I'm stupid. We're stupid if we judge by the face. Uh, and, and it really made an impact on me. They were judging by the face and not by the heart. I had an older lady in our church um, a few years back share this poem with me that her dad had shared with her. It goes like this. If I knew you and you knew me and each of us could plainly see and with an inner light divine discern what's in your heart and mine, I'm sure that we would differ less and clasp our hands in friendliness if I knew you and you knew me. Isn't that great? And, and so this is what the Bible's gonna challenge us. This is what James is gonna challenge us about in verses one through 13. First of all, let's look at the command. In verse one, here comes the command. Uh, he says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. There it is, the two Greek words combined to show, to judge or to receive by face. And they're saying that favoritism and true Christianity are incompatible. Now, this doesn't seem like a big deal to us. It doesn't seem very revolutionary to us. But 2,000 years ago, when this was written in the first century AD, it would have been revolutionary. This was totally countercultural. This was radical stuff that the followers of Jesus uh, were teaching. Um, and what he was saying here is that when we, when we live the way Jesus, when we are Christ followers, they, they, they derisively, you know the term Christian was actually a negative term to mock Christians. They called us little Christs, little Jesuses. And we took it as a badge of honor and said, thank you so much for the insult. We love that insult. We want to be little Jesuses. We want to be Christians. We want to be Christ followers. And when we do that, we show the distinctiveness of following Christ, and it makes a huge impact. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw people, men and women, boys and girls, uh, to myself. But when we, do not, when we show favoritism, when we are prejudiced, it waters down the attractiveness of Christianity. It makes us like everybody else. In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi wrote that during his student days, he read the gospel seriously and considered converting to Christianity. He believed that in the teachings of Jesus, he could find the solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. So one Sunday, he decided to attend services at a nearby church and talk to the minister about becoming a Christian. When he entered the sanctuary, however, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go worship with his own people. Gandhi left the church and never returned. If Christians have caste differences also, he said, I might as well remain a Hindu. That ushers prejudice and partiality not only betrayed Jesus, but also turned a person away from trusting him as Savior. Um, uh, Brian Lowther has written about favoritism in families. 
And this is so damaging with our witness in culture and society and our community. But favoritism is, is also very damaging within our family life. He writes this, the favorite child, without thinking about it, what's your gut reaction to those three words? Let me ask you that. What's your gut reaction to the favorite child? One of three. A, yes, that was me growing up. Insert here a knowing wink to other favorite children of the world and pat yourself on the back. B, no, that was my sibling, and I'm just now getting over it, but hey, thanks for bringing that up. (laughs) C, wait, favoritism? Are you suggesting I'm doing this to my own children? I got along with one of my children a little better than the other, but I never say so out loud or act as though I like someone more. There's no way they know. No matter who you are in this scenario, experts say favoritism in families is very common. Kids have an overwhelming sense of justice, and they're aware when things are unjust, said Carl Pillemer, a sociologist at Cornell University, who has studied favoritism extensively. I'm doing interviews with hundreds of people age 70 and older, and one of the most emotional things for them after 70 or 80 years are memories of parental favoritism. Think of that, a 70 and an 80-year-old still feeling emotional woundedness over parental favoritism. For people who feel that there was great differential treatment in their family, it does have lasting effects. And so the Bible says that we need to fight favoritism wherever we find it, in our church, in our community, uh, in our society, uh, in our culture, and within our own homes uh, as well. Now here's the example he uses uh, from verses two through four, and it's 2,000-year-old example, but boy, it, it works today, I'm telling you. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and the Greek word here for fine clothes means like a Roman toga that a senator would wear and with a senatorial gold ring as well. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, now so far, so good. Nothing wrong with that. Pastor Tomiko and her greeting team, this is their hero so far, all right? Every person that walks in these doors, we're, we're as a congregation, all of us, not just the greeting team, but all of us, here's a good seat. Can I help you? Do you need directions to children's ministry? Can I encourage you in any way, always looking for that person that visits our family? That's good. Here's the problem. But say to the poor man, You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. This is carrying the idea of a footstool. So here's this guy. He has a footstool in church. And he says, here, come and sit by my footstool. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Uh, William Barclay, the great Bible commentator, uh, he writes this. In its early days, the church was predominantly poor and humble. And therefore, if a rich man was converted and did come to the Christian fellowship, there must have been a very real temptation to make a fuss over him and to treat him as a special trophy for Christ. Now, that's why in our church, we want to create a warm atmosphere where we're always looking, not just for the person we know the best, but for maybe the person we know the least. And, and, you, and you go up to him and say, hey, my name's Glenn. Um, you know, what's your name? Don't say, uh, uh, are you new to our church today? Because they may say, I've been here for 50 years. So don't say that, okay? <laughs> Just say, hey, my name's Glenn. What's your name? I don't believe we've met before. 
I don't believe we've met before, or I don't know that I've caught your name. And so we're working to make this a warm environment, and, and not just the greeting team. I'm actually sorry I singled them out, because we all are members of the greeting team. Consider yourself deputized, okay? I should have Pastor Tomiko stand right up now and do the sign of the cross over you or something like that. You are hereby deputized as greeters uh, here in, in our church family. And, and so we want to do that to create warmth, uh, especially for everyone, everybody in here. It's whether somebody's come for 20, 50 years or, or whether they've just came for the first time. There was a young college student named Bill. Bill had wild hair spiked with vivid colors. Bill always wore a t-shirt with holes in it, blue jeans, and usually was barefoot. He was actually a brilliant young man and had become a Christian while attending college. He attended a Christian organization on campus, but he also wanted to find a church. Across the street from his college was a conservative, very traditional church. Everyone dressed up in suits and nice dresses. One Sunday, Bill decided to visit that church. He walked into the sanctuary with no shoes, jeans, and a t-shirt and wild hair. The service had already started, so Bill walked down the aisle looking for a seat. But the church was packed, and he could not find a seat anywhere. By now, people were uncomfortable, but no one said anything. Bill got closer to the front of the church. When he realized there were no seats left and not knowing what else to do, he just sat down in the aisle. Now, this was a perfectly acceptable behavior at his college Bible study. But this was a church where this had never happened before. You could feel the tension everywhere. The pastor didn't know what to do, so he just stood there for a moment of silence. At that moment, an elderly man, one of the oldest members of that church, known by everyone, slowly made his way down the aisle toward Bill. The man was in his 80s, wore a three-piece suit. He was a godly man, very dignified, but traditional and conservative. As he started walking toward Bill, everyone was thinking, you can't blame him for what he's about to do. How can you expect a man of his age and of his background to understand some college kid who was not dressed appropriately for church, no shoes, wild hair, sitting on the church floor? The old man walked with a cane, so it took a long time for him to reach Bill. The church was utterly silent except for the clicking of the old man's cane. All eyes were focused on him. Finally, the old man reached Bill. He paused a moment, then dropped his cane on the floor. With great difficulty, the old man lowered himself and sat down next to Bill. He shook his hand and welcomed him to the church. When the pastor regained his composure, he said, What I'm about to preach you will probably never remember, but what you have just seen you will never forget. Next Sunday, we're going to have a bunch of high school students in our adult services, and let's give them... Uh, the same kind of welcome. Okay, the next one, Old Testament example. I'm going to leave that for homework uh, this afternoon uh, or tonight before you go to bed or tomorrow morning for your quiet time. Read uh, 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13, and just read that on your own as an Old Testament example of what we're talking about. But let's spend the remainder of our time looking at three reasons why we should not show favoritism. Number one, it is illogical as Mr. Spock would say. Two Star Trek references in one sermon. That is a good day. Here we go. Uh, verses 5 through 7. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? 
Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Let's hold that for a second. I love the original Greek here. Carries with it the idea, the, the name of Jesus which was placed on you. The noble name that when you came to Christ was placed on you. Isn't that wonderful? You got the name Christian, Christ follower. That noble name was placed on you to whom you belong. And so act like he would act in these kind of situations. Said it is illogical. Uh, Like William Barclay said earlier, in their society, um, most Christians were poor and their persecutors would be the rich in most cases. And so they were given into that human tendency to play up to those above you. I mean, we've been doing this ever since junior high and high school, right? Or even elementary school. Remember how the coolest kids in school, um, you, just, you just really tried to impress them. You always tried to make it into their group. You, you tried to play to them, even though often they were the ones that were bullying you. It was the cooler kids that would often be bullying you. And yet we would try to impress the very people that we're mistreating us. And this is a trait not just when we're young, but when we're old as well. And so he says it's illogical for you to do this because in most cases, it was the rich who were persecuting the mainly poor followers of Christ at that time. Number two, it is unbiblical. Uh, Verse eight, James two, verse eight, if you really keep the royal law, oh, that's interesting. What's he gonna call the royal law? The law from which all other laws flow, found in scripture, Love your neighbor as yourself. Think about it. Every other law will fall into place. If you love your neighbor as yourself, uh, you won't kill him. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't cheat on his, with his wife. If you love your neighbor as yourself, uh, you won't lie to him. You won't steal from him. You are doing right. Uh, verse 9. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as law breakers. Verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point. See, we tend to rank sins. We say, okay, I haven't killed anybody. But he says, at one point, if we have merely a trace of prejudice or favoritism, conscious or subconscious, at that one point, we're guilty of breaking all the law. Verse 10, for he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Matt Chandler writes, we hear about partiality, we hear about favoritism, and the unregenerate heart says, I didn't kill nobody, I didn't commit adultery, I didn't break any major law. And James' point is, so what if you didn't murder or commit adultery? If you are showing partiality, you have broken the law. You discriminate, you broke the law. If you are a racist, accidentally or not, you have broken the law. If you avoid the poor, you have broken the royal law of love. You have sinned against God, and we need a Savior. It's unbiblical. It's illogical. And number three, it will be judged. Uh, Verses 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that, when we come to Christ, gives freedom. Okay? Verse 13. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. If God has been so merciful to us, if God accepted us regardless of what our face looked like, mercy, we should be merciful to others. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And we are called to be salt of the earth and light of the world 
followers of Christ, radical mercy transforms the world. Radical mercy draws people to Jesus. Radical mercy makes the gospel of Christ attractive. A few years back, I was speaking at a pastor's conference in Riga, Latvia. And there were both Russian pastors and Latvian pastors present. So I was preaching in English, and then I would have a Latvian translator, and then also a Russian translator who was a Christian uh, young lady by the name of Avida. And she would translate into Russian from my English, and the other young lady would translate into Latvian. And at the end of this uh, few days of this uh, conference, this pastor's conference, Avida comes up to me with tears in her eyes. And she just looks at me, and she says, for so many years, you were the enemy. You see, when the week began, she just saw me as an American. She just saw me by my face, the face of an American. And and we had nuclear weapons pointed at her country, and they had nuclear weapons pointed at our country. And I was afraid they were going to blow up me and my family and me. And she was afraid that we were going to blow up her family and her. And we were enemies. But after several days of her hearing me share from the heart about love of Christ and, and love of God's word and, 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 the, and that common bond we had in Christ. She comes to me with tears in her eyes because she had now gone beyond my face and she had gotten to know my heart and the two of us had found common ground in Christ. Now, we, we need to repent of any prejudice, conscious or subconscious. We need to repent of any favoritism, conscious or unconscious, and, and, and receive Christ as our Lord and Savior because we, we are lawbreakers, and so we need a Savior. We need a Savior because if we've disobeyed in one small point, we've disobeyed in all of it. So would everybody just look with me, please, at this thing that says resource uh, there in the book rack. If you have that, and you can take it home with you if you want to, we replenish them every week, and so hopefully there's one in, in, in front there. How to become a follower of Jesus. It says, A, admit your condition before God. God, even if I think I might be clean on every other thing, and I'm not, oh my goodness, this message has convicted me. I, I, I guarantee I've got prejudice in my conscious and in my subconscious. I guarantee I do favoritism consciously and subconsciously. I need a savior. B, believe that Jesus by his mercy on the cross, he hung and looked at a group of prejudiced people with the judge by the face, and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Uh, by Christ, he's my solution. Mercy, Christ's mercy on the cross will triumph over judgment. And then see, choose to follow Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jesus said, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. Would you pray silently with me as I pray out loud? Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And all God's family said, amen.